Pulp MX Network production. To this day, when I hear that song, I see you standing there on that lawn. Discount shades, store bought tank, flip flops, and cut off jeans. Somewhere between that. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's industry seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Guts Racing, Plum Creek Funding, Pro Glow Wash, Works Connection, Bass Foundry, TL Speed Shop, Grandstone Boots, and Fly Racing. Welcome everybody to the Industry Seating Podcast. My name is Jason Thomas. It is November 27th, 2022, and we just got through the Thanksgiving holiday. I hope that was great. For all of you listening at home, you're probably uh, getting a little antsy. It's that time of year where there's not a lot of racing unless you want to watch you know, Australia or Paris or somewhere, and you start thinking about Supercross again, and I know for myself, it's been nice to be home a little bit. Uh, but you know, this sport is so ingrained into me that I'm already starting to, you know, I'm making, we're making travel plans and obviously with fly racing, we're doing all of our season planning, but I'm already starting to get excited. And that kind of builds in the crescendo, you know, as we go through Christmas and you you see January new year's on the horizon. And then man, it's here again, and we're going to be into the 2023 season. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We have some questions that uh, listeners have sent in. I'm very appreciative of those that I'm going to cover. But before we do, let's thank the sponsors of this podcast, Pirelli Tires, Plum Creek Funding, Guts Racing, Fast Foundry, Works Connection, Pro Glow Wash, TL Speed Shop, Grantstone Boots, and a brand new one, which they're going to be coming on board for 2023, is IVMX, which is the International Vet Motocross Series. I'll tell you more about them later and fly racing. So let's jump right into these questions because I was pretty excited about a few of them that I got. And uh, one of the ones that I had to kind of think about and it brought up so many memories and I kind of wanted to analyze it from every angle. Um, and, and I'm sure that he has done this as well, but the, the subject of this is Adam Cincerello. And Sean asks... Can you talk about the dynamic of AC9's career so far? What do you think has gone wrong? What would you try to do to correct that? How long do you think he's got left on top-tier equipment before his opportunities dry up? Do you ever see him pulling it together to be dominant? So several questions within one. Uh, But, you know, I'm just going to talk about what I see, uh, have seen in the past for Adam, his current status, and kind of what, the future holds. And obviously it's just my opinion, right? I don't get to decide where things go for him. And to be fair, sometimes he doesn't either. You know, this, this sport can be cruel at times. And for as much success as Adam Cianciarillo has seen, I have to imagine that it's been wildly frustrating at times too. So my experience with Adam, you know, I remember watching him uh, at mini Olympics forever ago. And I'm talking, um, trying to pinpoint what year it would have been maybe like 2003, 2004, something like that. Uh, but watching him on Cobras and, you know, like peewees, right. He was insanely talented at such an early age, jumping things that you really shouldn't be jumping on bikes that size, but his talent at that age was undeniable and everybody who was paying attention could see it. And I was already racing professionally and, you know, mini Olympics are held in my hometown. So I, when I was still living there, I would go out there and check it out a couple days, um, you know, before or after my own training, but I wasn't very far removed from racing mini Olympics either. I even went out there and I think the 2000 year, um, maybe end of 99, and raced, uh, I won the Supercross portion of it. Um, I didn't race motocross because I was in kind of full Supercross practice mode. But um, 
I, it was fun for me to go out there and see friends. And I obviously had all my friends, amateur friends racing out there, I, you know, lived with the Butler brothers at the time. So they would be out there racing all the amateur stuff. So I would be watching and, and in the course of my own preparation for, uh, for the new season as well. But AC was incredible then. And you've watched him where I watched him go up through the ranks and be a dominant mini cycle superstar. And, you know, every, sponsor wanted to have their name attached to him long before he was a pro you know he was he was a huge star as a kid and his arrival into the pro ranks was long awaited and everybody had him crowned as the next champion for years right and I think he when he arrived he did nothing but fuel that because you remember he went out and won what his first two or three supercross races which is insane to to do but then things got very difficult for him. You know, he got really sick. I think he had Epstein-Barr. I don't remember. You know, that was like 2014, something like that. It's been a long time. But it was rough and tumble for several years. You know, he just didn't find the success that everyone had him pegged for. You know, it was injury after injury and just the frustrations were mounting. And he was highly paid, right? there. You think about the amount of resources that were allocated to him for going on a couple decades now is pretty amazing. Uh, so I'm sure somewhere along the way that whether it was Kawasaki or Mitch Payton or, you know, back then it was Thor, now it's Fox. These companies had to be getting a little bit frustrated on some level. And I don't think their support wavered. But I think it's normal for everybody when you have injury after injury and you have this, all of this marketing attributed to someone and they're not realizing their potential because of not anything that they're doing on purpose, but just accidents and circumstances are preventing that. It does lead to frustration at times. So I, I would imagine that was the case here too. I don't think it was a situation where they were about to give up on it, but there, there's always a certain amount of frustration when you are so hopeful and sometimes it's expectation also. It doesn't always have to be hope and those that's not realized. Yes, people are going to start asking questions and be like, man, do we just keep you know, allocating money and resources and time and effort towards him? You know, Is this ever going to work out? I think that's a fair question that has to be asked. For every athlete, if it's not coming to fruition yet, doesn't mean it's never going to happen. It just wasn't happening yet. And Adam, I'm sure, I'm sure he had to do a lot of soul searching during that time, right? And I think he made a very smart decision in hiring Nick Way through that process because, you know, Nick's a really good friend of mine. I don't get to see him nearly enough, but it, Nick's a person that I lived with, I trained with, I spent tons of time with. And I know how level-headed he is. I know how much wisdom he has to impart uh, because of his own experiences. And he lived this sport at a very high level for a very long time. And, and he saw the ups and downs and what works and what doesn't work. And he can save people from a lot of pitfalls, right? And, and he's doing the same thing with Cameron McAdoo and other riders now. And I think that's a, a really, really wise thing is for athletes and it doesn't matter you know like to me ac accomplished more than nick ever has right he won super like 450 races he won uh an outdoor national championship like he, his career surpassed what nick was able to accomplish but that doesn't mean that nick can't see all the things that went on around him and in his prime and apply those things because it's it's not always about well was i better than him and how do i get him to that level it's like hey these things that you may, these roads that you may want to go down, I've been down and they don't, they don't work. Or I've seen friends go down that path or try these things and that doesn't work. So don't waste six months, a year, two years, whatever, doing these things because there's no light at the end of that tunnel. So to me, that's what it's more about. And it's also having uh, relatability. I don't even know if that's a word, but it, if it's not, I'm going to make it one someone who can train with you, be at the track with you every day that's been through it and they understand the mental aspects of this. And, you know, when Adam's injured or he's having a tough time, Nick's been there and he can 
understand and he can give him wisdom. And it's also Adam has to have someone around him that he respects in that way. Because if it's just some guy that, yeah, he's a fitness expert or whatever. Well, you've never been through this sport. You've never had to race and sit on the starting line and understand what that pressure feels like and the ups and downs of it and trying to stay even keeled through that whole process. Not many people can relate to that. So if you have someone that is really smart with fitness, really smart with riding technique, is a great human being to have around you and as, as a role model to build your life towards, which Nick Way is, uh, that's very, very valuable. And I, I think Adam has done a very smart thing in McAdoo and whoever else you know, works with him in the future is, is doing a great thing. And it's not just Nick Way. There, there are other people that I would say are similar. You know, I think David Villeman can be that person too. Um, there are other people out there like that, but to have someone in your corner that has all of those aspects all in one person is very rare. So, you know, you watch Adam go through this path, right? And, and to me, the ultimate low for Adam was that night in Las Vegas where he lost the Supercross Championship. Was it 2018, 19? I think it was 19. He crashes out. Really, all he has to do is just kind of hold it together in that main event, the 2 East uh, main event. And he couldn't do it. He crashes, loses the title, and just an unbelievable blow to not only him, but his team and his sponsors and his, you know, just his mental state. I can't imagine how difficult that had to be to go through that night. And I heard a story where you know, they're in the pits and they want to do an interview with Adam right after this. And you think about how hard it would be to have any composure in that moment where you just got your biggest goal in your life ripped away from you. And it was your own fault, right? You made a stupid mistake, crashed out and lost something that you'd been working towards your entire life. And I know that Nick Way was there. Nick basically told him like, hey, you've got to get up and you've got to, you know, be a man and you've got to take this head on. And, you know, Nick really encouraged him to, to stand up to this and, and handle this the right way. And Adam did, I I was shocked at how much composure Adam had in that moment. And I think that speaks to how he's handled things from there because it hasn't been smooth sailing. You know, there's been a ton of highs. He's, he ended up winning that national championship, which I think was very telling how he bounced back from that. He's won a bunch of 450 races since then. He's established himself as an elite 450 level racer when he's healthy, but he's also had to suffer through a ton more injuries since then. He's been hurt over and over and over since then on the 450. So he's really had to be able to adapt to whatever happens to him. And I think it's, it's, turned him into a really well-rounded person and he's able to kind of handle whatever comes at him. Now, I also think that it's taken a toll, not only on his body, but on his, his mind. And I think his expiration date on, on his career will likely be more quick or, or it will expire sooner than I think what you're seeing from guys like, uh, forget about, (laughs) forget about Brayton or those guys. But even a guy like Tomac or Osborne, who are going to race into their early 30s, I don't see that for Cincerello. And that's just my opinion. I could be wrong. Adam can race as long as he deems that it's a viable pathway for him. I'm not, (laughs) clearly, I'm not a decision maker, but it's just what I see. I think he retires pretty early because I think the injuries have mounted and I think he has a hard time rebounding from each of those. You think about how many surgeries he's had over the years. And I also think just mentally it's worn him down some. And I don't know how much more of that he is willing to take, right? He's healthy right now. He's preparing for 2023. You know, he doesn't have a long-term deal in place. So hopefully 2023 goes well for him. He wins races. He's a championship contender. Maybe he gets his first championship ever. I don't know. But I think if it goes sideways again, you see some sort of significant injury, 
that requires significant time off and you know the things we don't want to see happen to Adam but unfortunately have we've come to expect I don't I just don't know how much more gas there is in the tank I I don't know when does Adam say man I just don't want to do this anymore I don't want to go through therapy again and rebuild myself all over again and you also have to start wondering okay these factory teams, are they going to keep giving him opportunities? And I think for now, yes, right? Because I think if Kawasaki had said, oh, man, we've just, we've reached the end of our rope on how much support we can, we can give you, um, we're going to have to look at, uh, at other riders. And that didn't happen. But if it did, I think HRC would have taken a shot at him. I, I think other teams would have gone with him and kind of kick the tires and see what's there. Can they revitalize this? Can they be the catalyst to help Adam reach his true potential? So I don't think that road is, is ending quite yet, but at some point it will. As he gets older, if injuries continue to mount, that's something that he's going to have to face. So just kind of looking at every scenario here, do I think he's going to be right in the mix to win Anaheim one. I do. I, I really do. We, we really have never seen Adam as a guy that's just a middling, not competitive racer. He's either at his best and running up front or he's injured. Those are really the only two options we've ever seen from him on a 450. So I don't expect any different than that. I think he'll come out swinging at a one. I wouldn't be shocked to see him win. I wouldn't be shocked at all to see him, you know, on the podium, which kind of the same statement, but that's just who he is. He is incredibly fast, incredibly talented, but he's also been incredibly susceptible to injury. And why would I expect anything different? That's what he has told us. That's who he's told us that he is. So I'm going to just take that at face value and expect the same thing. Can he find a way to avoid injury long enough to put a championship together. I don't know. We saw it once with the outdoor championship that he, he won. He was really consistent. He did all the right things. The 2020 450 motocross championship, he did the same thing. Now he was bested by Zach Osborne, but that was a great summer for AC. It really was. So we've seen it, but it's been the outlier event, not the norm. So I, I don't know if he can find that again. You know, it's been a couple years. He's had significant injuries since then. He's older. Riders have gotten better around him. You look at how much better guys like Tomac are, Jason Anderson is. Um, these guys have all improved. Like, he's kind of been sitting standstill, been injured, time off, away from the sport. Those guys are continuing their improvement and they've done nothing but better themselves. The motors, you know, they've got on teams that it's working. I would expect to see a Cooper Webb's resurgence at some point. Um, and, and a lot of these guys are kind of out for blood. So the road is not going to be any easier for Adam, but his talent puts him in a place where it's certainly possible. Like he is so good. He could come out whole shot a one, and lead every lap, and I would just shrug my shoulders. I really would. Now, would other people be up in arms and like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it? Yeah, that's the nature of motocross media, you know, if you haven't noticed. But I personally wouldn't be because that's who Adam is on a motorcycle. It's also who he is when he's off a motorcycle or crashed or injured. So that's just how I see Adam. He is the ultimate boom or bust rider. Tomac's not. Tomac's Steady Eddie, always there, put, puts in good results. Does he have his best year ever all the time? No. Was 2022 that? Yes. But he's always kind of there, hanging around. Even if he's not your champion, he's second, third, whatever in the championship. He and Adam are very different animals when it comes to that. So we'll see. Um, it's a very long-winded way of explaining that I don't know what Adam will be, but in my opinion, it will be one or the other. He will be either winning races or a storyline all season, or he'll be injured and we won't be talking about him. That That's just kind of how I see Adam going. You know, the ultimate question is, do I see him putting it together and becoming a champion in this class? 
I hate to say this because I'm, I'm truly an Adam Cincerello fan. I really like him. I don't. Um, I don't think it's going to happen because you look at like Chase Sexton, who I haven't even mentioned, but his growth has been so incredible, right? And I think we're going to see him break out again in 2023. I just think the class is in a really tough spot for Adam to go out and be your champion. I really do. Um, I think if he has a shot at it, it would be in motocross. I just think crashes will get him in supercross. They, they always have. I think they will continue to do so. That doesn't mean he can't win races. That doesn't mean he can't leave us on certain Saturday nights going, oh my gosh, that guy is so good. That, that's what I expect. But I also expect nights where he sprawled out on the track and he throws 26 points away to Tomac and Sexton and whoever, you know, Jason Anderson, whoever is great in 2023. That's just what I expect to happen. So I, I don't like saying that, but um, uh, unfortunately, that's just what I think we're going to see. So thank you for the question, Sean. Um, and, and I do sincerely hope the best for Adam, but we have, you know, we have to be realistic about what he's shown us and what we expect. So the next question is from Rachel. And she has a pretty big background, it, it seems, um, kind of watching other sports. So watching uh, motocross Motocross of Nations, she's asking about Roxon, which we've talked about a lot, but she wants to know what the differences would be would be between if he takes the Twisted T Suzuki deal or if he takes the Firepower Honda deal. And I think she's on point here with thinking those are the two options that are in play. Um, if he does something besides those two, those two, I'll be shocked because I think those are really all the, the serious options are on the table. So the, the differences between the two are pretty simple. You know, Firepower Honda is a, a private team. They are a global team because they have a really big presence in Australia, which where the team was founded, and that's more like the genuine Honda team, which you'll see that kind of name out there. And then the Firepower Honda team is more the U.S.-based side. Now, they're both owned by a guy named Yariv Konsky, who I, I know pretty well. Um, he's a former racer. He's very ambitious. He's, I would say, I, I, I'm struggling to find someone more, but he's the most passionate team owner in the sport. Like there is no one that is more into this than Yareev. And I think he puts himself out there. He takes risks financially. Um, he's all in on this thing. So he owns both of these teams. And that's where you've seen, you know, Kenny race for both sides of that. You know, he raced for the firepower side, um, in, you know, Paris and Cardiff. And then they kind of absorbed him into the genuine Honda team a little bit when he was in Australia. They're really the same thing. It's the same entity. The sponsors are a little different. What name they put on it's a little bit different, but it's, it's the same group. Now the firepower Honda team in America is managed by Martin Davalos and it's a fledgling team, right? They don't have the staff, they don't have the infrastructure that any team that Kenny's ever been associated with does. Even if you look at like RCH Suzuki that Kenny was obviously on, Kenny won championships there. They had a ton of funding. They had a ton of staff. It was as close to a factory team as a private team has ever been. Just when you look at the resources they had to throw at racing, they were on the level of a factory team. They just didn't necessarily have Suzuki wasn't um, if you look at what HRC is doing, Suzuki wasn't in, a, in the same space to do that. They didn't have just endless amounts of testing and R and D and support to throw at it like Honda does. So that was as really the only to me drawback that RCH Suzuki had versus what HRC Honda did because on the money side, to me, it was about the same. Um, and that's going to be, I think the biggest question for Kenny, if he goes to firepower Honda, can he handle not having all those resources? Because it is going to be understaffed. It, he's not going to have a chassis guy and a suspension guy and an engine guy and a electronics guy. And all, when he comes off the track, all those guys waiting to talk to him and have a debrief and go over the bike and make changes. He's going to have like one guy, right? He's gonna, and that guy's not going to be the most intelligent, 
educated guy in the sport like he would have at these other factory teams. That's just not how it's going to go because of resources. It's, it's really simple. There's not enough money. They can't go hire that person. That person's not going to leave like HRC or a factory team that has benefits and 401ks and all this uh, job security to go to a team like Power Power Honda. You're, you're just not going to see that. So logically, it's going to be a step down on technology and equipment. And, you know, you've heard Kenny say so many times, oh, the bike's so great. And, you know, I think the quote was like something like going to this privateer-based bike opened my eyes to what the Honda can be and blah, 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 blah. That's all well and good. And that's a lot of that is, to me, you have to kind of go beneath the surface of that a little bit because I think Kenny is a little bit bitter at Honda for, you know, pulling the offer when he went to world supercross. And to me, there's so it's really layered and you can't just take it at surface value, you know, at face value and say, Oh, well that bike must be better than the factory Honda because Kenny said it is eh, like, hold on, calm down. It doesn't mean that he didn't like some of the settings they're running. Like that can totally be true, but f- to make a blanket statement like, oh, this bike's way better than my factory Honda. I, I don't buy that. I, I've just been around this for too long, and I know Kenny's personality is he's taking subtle shots at Honda too because I, I would agree that Honda's probably very structured in how they want to approach the motorcycle, right? If you want to get crazy on suggestions of like, we need to try this and that and go way off the grid of settings. Honda's probably going to go, no, that's not going to work. We're not going to waste time and resources trying these way off the, the radar, you know, maybe companies, aftermarket things, whatever, because we're not going to race with those. Amount. We know that for whatever reason, like whether it's from, um, testing that they can do like lab testing or dyno testing or their own test riders that they have on staff, they know within a range of what works and doesn't work. And riders in the past have really struggled with that. Like here, Ryan Villapoto at Kawasaki, he struggled with that. These teams don't want to veer off the path too far of what they think works and doesn't work because it's wasted time. You're just wasting effort. If you know, like these things work and these things don't, so don't waste your time on things that don't. Well, a team like Firepower Honda, they're gonna tr- they're willing to try anything, right? If Kenny says, "Hey, let's try these clamps, this comp, this aftermarket company, this that whatever," they're not gonna tell him no. Of course, they're gonna try it. And if Kenny wants to try it on his own, he can do it. He's not on a factory Honda anymore, where he's got a, fa- a practice bike mechanic that's that guy will get fired if he puts some aftermarket company product on it, right? Well, Kenny has this Honda now that he either bought or Firepower Honda supplied to him. They can put anything they want on it and try it, right? And testing and private testing. So I'm sure he's come across some things that opened his eyes that maybe they're better, maybe they're not. But like, oh man, that really works differently. So that's where you're seeing that comment come in. If you're, re- if you're reading that statement and going, oh man, that bike's just better than the factory Honda, <sighs> Hold, pump the brakes, right? Because... I would guarantee you, and and this is just my opinion, that like a factory ECU and full work suspension and these things, the capabilities of those things far surpass what he can get on a privateer Honda. Now, a bike's only as good as you set it up. So just because you have a factory ECU or just because you have factory suspension, if you don't set it up correctly, it's not going to work, right? It's not just a magic pill. It's more of what it's capable of, right? If you have production suspension, the ceiling is like X, okay? If you have factory suspension, the ceiling is X plus whatever number you want to assign to it, plus 20%. And that's really what it comes down to. So if you ask like, why is a factory bike really important? Why do guys feel like they can't win if they don't have factory equipment? It's because you're going to, these guys, right? A Tomac, a Roxon, a Cooper Webb, a Ferrandez, take your pick, Sexton. They're going to reach the potential of what a production bike will let them get to, right? You give somebody like Sexton 
a factory Honda last summer and you give them a stock Honda, right? They're going to be able to go faster on the factory bike because the ceiling of what that bike will do is much higher. Factory suspension, the fork, like the legs are much bigger, right? So you get much more stability. The amount that that suspension just in diameter can handle as far as energy and G-forces and all that is much higher. So he can push the bike much further. He can flatland stuff. You know, if, if he takes a big impact that, or let's say he hits a braking bump that he wasn't expecting um, and the bike kicks, what that bike will handle, it'll absorb so much more. Like it has a bigger shock shaft. It will absorb much more energy than a production one will. Just That's just science and that's just physics, okay? So the faster these guys go, Roxon, whoever, obviously, who we're talking about, he will be able to push the bike much further having full factory suspension that he would having production-based, even A-kit stuff. The level, the internals, the quality is better. You know, you can get the same diameter of a shock shaft with A-kit stuff, but that same concept translates all the way throughout, right? A factory ECU is, is better. Technologically, it's better. You can reprogram everything. The electronics packages is what everybody really wants, like the traction control side of it. What factory Honda, the technology that they have is all proprietary, right? Even if you went out and got some of the best aftermarket stuff, it's, no, it's not on the same level of what factory Honda can produce because they're customizing, they're building it specifically to that engine package and everything is engineered together in a cohesive package, right? So if you go out and buy an aftermarket ECU or an aftermarket setup, it wasn't custom built to all work together. So you're only gonna reach a certain limit and then it's like, okay, well, the bike's as good as we're gonna get here because this is just what the equipment we've been dealt where a factory bike is just gonna allow you to go to another level. And when you reach your peak, when you're Tomac or you're these guys and you're riding the best you can, you're not going to be able to get further. You're not going to be able to go faster because the bike's going to hold you back at some level. And it's, we're talking very subtle increments, like 1%, 2%. But if you want to win, if you want to beat the best guys in the world, you can't expect to be able to beat them on subpar equipment. That's not a fair ask. So that's where I think Kenny will struggle and I'll give you an example of how that plays out in, in the real world. Let's say we go to Anaheim 1 and the track is super hard pack and it's, it doesn't change at all during the main event. It's really consistent and Kenny can hit his marks. So let's say he's on the Firepower Honda and he can just hit his marks every single time. He wins the race, right? We've seen Kenny 1A1 before, no big deal. That's fine. I can totally see that happening. But we go to Oakland at round two and the track is dynamic. And when I, I say dynamic, I mean it's changing every lap. The ruts are different, the holes are different, the whoops are constantly evolving throughout the main event. And you need to be making bike changes throughout the day and, and night. And if Kenny runs that same setting that he had at Anaheim and he goes to Oakland and the track is just beat to hell in practice and he comes in and he's like, man, the, the setup is just not working, track's softer, it's rough, like there's actual like breaking bumps, there's super aggressive ruts. Maybe we got some rain during the week for Oakland. That's where you need the expertise of that suspension guy, the chassis guy, all those technicians that can listen to his feedback and say, okay, he's, he's saying that the bike is doing this. I need to adjust it, give this input, make these changes, and that will fix his problem because not every rider can say, yeah, we need to go, you know, softer on the high speed or out on compression, speed it up, slow it down. There's a ton, right? Lower the sag, raise the sag. There's a, you know, we need to change the races inside, you know, the triple clamps. Like there's, there's a million different ways to adjust the motorcycle to accommodate for softer dirt or whatever, right? More load. Like if you get softer dirt, it drags the rear suspension down because of the load and softer dirt. So a lot of times you'd want to go like stiffer on the rear to accommodate for that. Well, all those things, you need someone really smart that's able to understand what a rider's telling you and then apply it. 
not every rider is going to know exactly how to fix that. He's not, you know, maybe Kenny is, maybe he's not. But having that person that understands those things, what the rider's telling him and also the bike dynamics, that's really important. And that can be the difference on a particular weekend between winning and losing. And I don't know if you go to a smaller privateer team and it doesn't have to be Firepower Honda, it can be anybody, if you're going to have that guy that knows exactly what to do. And also, are you going to have all the resources? Are you going to have a million different options and variations? Are you going to be able to tear down the suspension in the middle of the afternoon? Are you going to have a bunch of different settings of races inside the clamps? You're going to have five different linkages that you could adjust to that are incrementally different, like very small differences. Those are all the things that a factory team has in spades, right? That's what they, they can offer micro adjustments. I don't know if a, a smaller team can do that. So that's where it gets really tricky and you see where it's tough to compete for a championship because of those individual weekends where if things aren't going great, if you're having a tough day and you're trying to turn it around for the night show, those are the people you lean on. Those are the, the really smart engineers and these people that have been doing this their whole life. They can make the difference between just you know, letting that bad day turn into a bad result in the main event, or they rebound, they figure the bike out, and you come out and you're on the podium thanking the team for figuring the bike out for you. So that's kind of how I see the Power Power Honda side. Now on the Twisted T Suzuki side, I think they're going to have more resources to throw at this because you look at who their sponsors are, Twisted T Suzuki, which is a, that's a dynamic in itself because Kenny will not be allowed to run Twisted T logos on his bike or on body because of Red Bull. So keep that in mind. That's a wrinkle in this whole program too is, I don't know that as fact, it's just scuttlebutt, but I don't think Red Bull has any interest in co-promoting with Twisted T. I don't, I'm pretty sure that's a thing. So he's going to have to rely on progressive insurance to cover a lot of resources and assets and pay him and staff and all those things too. So that's kind of a separate entity, separate deal. But I do think Twisted T Suzuki, Twisted T Progressive Suzuki has a lot to throw at it, right? I think staffing will be better. I think they will be able to go out and hire really smart people to be in Kenny's corner. I know Suzuki is somewhat involved in this, so he will get access to factory equipment. And it doesn't mean that Honda wouldn't help him on some level too. Maybe that's something that they're working on is getting Honda to help him on like a Justin Brayton type program, you know, where he's gotten factory suspension and some electronic stuff. Maybe that would help alleviate some of the issue for Kenny on that side. But I think Suzuki would be all in. Well, I say all in. They would give everything they were able to, right? We know Kenny, we know Suzuki's motorcycle division is not doing really well. They're not very active in moto at the moment. They're not very active or they just pulled out completely of moto GP. They haven't really been a factor in MXGP for quite a while. So to say that they're dormant, I think is fair, Um, but they do have some, they do have a little bit to throw at it. I think they would give some money towards it. They would help with equipment as much as possible. I think you could get Japan involved, right? It's not like Suzuki Japan motorcycles is, is not a thing. Like they're still selling motorcycles. They still have a lot of technical expertise to help there. So that would be a coup for them. That would be a plus. Also, you look at Kenny's history with Suzuki, there's a ton of success. And I think Suzuki Japan would look at that and go, yeah, that's something we would get behind. Ken Roxon is a storied member of Suzuki over the years, both in Europe and in America. So that makes sense too. Um, and they are, they have, again, they have money to throw at this thing. They could offer Kenny a very, very attractive package, I think. And Kenny's saying he's not doing it for the money, but if you're looking at two situations and you kind of shrug your shoulders at both of them being similar, the one that's going to pay you a lot more money has to be attractive on some level, right? Like it has to matter somewhere. And you can, you can say that it doesn't matter until you're blue in the face, but I'm not naive enough to think that it's just never going to matter. So where do I think he ends up, I guess, is the key question. I don't know. Um, 
I'm leaning towards Twisted T Suzuki, Progressive Suzuki, because of the things I mentioned. Suzuki could help. There's a ton of money there. He's had a lot of success on the Suzuki. And he also doesn't have to stay on a Honda. When Honda pulled his contract, you know, Honda would probably be snickering somewhere going, ha, well, we kept him anyway. We didn't even have to pay him all that money, and we're still going to get the residual benefit of him being on a Honda, right? I'm not saying that, like, Lars or somebody. I don't think, I, I think that's beneath Lars, but somewhere somebody is probably doing that. Like, oh, man, this worked out for the best. We got to keep Roxanne. We didn't even have to, you know, we didn't have to pay him a couple million dollars to do it. So I think Kenny would rather not, you know, knowing how Kenny's personality is, he's, he's very independent. He's brash. Um, he's very outspoken. I don't think he would like anybody to be able to do that. So I, I think he would relish the fact that he could, you know, kind of give the finger to Honda by winning on a Suzuki. That's my opinion. I, I certainly don't have any inside info on that. That's just how I kind of see it is if he could go out and win on a Suzuki after Honda pulled his deal, I bet, I bet he would take some, some joy in that. Like he would feel some sort of um, redemption from that, whether that's misplaced or not. That's, yeah, that's for him to decide. He's, he's very much his own person and he's very, very strong willed. So we'll see. But again, where do I lean? Probably towards the Suzuki side. Um, I'm really surprised we haven't gotten a, a, like an announcement yet. But I think it's incoming like any day. Like if it was today, I wouldn't be shocked um, because I think he's got to be close. Like we're we're getting really late. It's about to be December, and everybody involved from every angle is watching the clock. Going, man, it's late. Like we need answers and we need them now. So. Expect that, uh, that answer incoming here really quickly. We're going to do one more question, but before we do, um, I want to thank uh, the sponsors of this podcast again, Pirelli Tires. If you didn't notice, Max Anstey won in Australia on Pirelli Tires, and that's one of my goals for this podcast is to get people more accustomed to Pirelli because you look globally, and they win all over the place, and then you look at America, and there's like this big disconnect, and they're not as prominent in America as everywhere else. And, and I get to go to these races. I see how much winning they do. Everyone outside of America is like, oh yeah, Pirelli's like the choice for tires. Like you wouldn't even think about anything else. Then you come to America and it's not, right? Everyone has been winning on Dunlop in America for a very long time. So I don't think that I'm going to like single-handedly change that dynamic. But if I can get people more familiar with Pirelli's and to try them, I think they're really going to like them. And that's been my experience, especially in motocross, which is their, you know, bread and butter outdoor motocross. I think Pirelli tires are absolutely incredible. And uh, I would just encourage you to, to give them a shot. If you don't like them, I I can promise you they're not going to be bad, right? It's not going to be like, Oh man, why'd you tell me to try that? was horrible. That's not going to be it. If you try them and you're like, eh, it's fine. It's just as good as what I was running. Okay. So be it. But I think there's a, a good chance that you're going to try it and be like, man, this is, uh, this is better than what I had been using. And uh, it could, yeah, could help you at, le- at least, if nothing else, make riding a more enjoyable experience for you. Guts Racing, they are joining the e-bike market. So they will have seat covers for a ton of e-bikes now and into 2023. So check that out. You know, there's such a huge crossover between moto and mountain bikes and e-bikes. But that's a big, uh, big step for them is getting into the e-bike market. They also added Kawasaki to their lineup. So they have a full offering of Kawasaki seat covers. So check out Guts Racing. Um, great crew over there and a great product as well. Plum Creek Funding. Rates came down a little bit. And they've been hovering. You know, they're bouncing a little bit back and forth. But they touched the fives the other day, which is was nice. We saw sevens, which in the sevens, man, it's really, really tough for that housing market. I don't think we're out of the woods yet on rates. I think we're probably going higher overall. But when you see, like if you're in the market for it, if you're looking to refi, if you're looking to buy something, you really need to be opportunistic and you need to pay attention because do the math on what the difference is between like 7.15, which I saw the other day, and like 5.86, which I also saw, like that was within like a 10-day stretch, which is crazy. That's not normal behavior for housing market, like for interest rates, that shouldn't happen. We shouldn't have that big a variation with, within such a short period, but that's where we are. That's everything 
finance right now is super volatile and you're just seeing these wild moves. So the moral of the story is if you are going to buy something, try to time it. And, and most people say, don't try to time. And if you need to really try to time this because do the math on like what a percent or a percent and a half does to a 30 year fixed loan. Right. And that doesn't mean you can't go refi it down the road, but it's going to cost you a ton of money to refi it. So like think let's, let's do quick math on this. Say you bought a house for half a million dollars. And I know that's a high number. I get it, whatever. I'm just picking a number because it's easy, easy math. But if you're trying to buy a house in Boise right now, which is where I'm at, where I live, that's probably what you're going to spend is 500 grand. That sucks. It's way too expensive. But let's think about that, okay? 1% difference going from six to seven, that's five grand every year that you're just throwing away in interest every year for 30 years, right? Like, over and over and over. And that's, that could be the difference in a week, just timing it correctly. You could get six to seven. Now, I don't want to have to tell you about a year or two ago, whenever these were rates were in the like high twos, <laughs> like low threes, even at worst low threes. And I was screaming at everybody about refis and buying something. Well, that time has passed. I don't think we're going back there anytime soon. Maybe not for the next 10 years. Who knows? But now, if you're in a position where you're going to buy something anyway, just pay attention to rates and, and try to get it, wait for the Fed to come out and ease things or, or whatever. I, I think there are, there's an opportunity to save. You can still save a bunch of money. Think about if you bought, you got that 5.9 versus 10 days later or 10 days earlier, you were at 7.1. That's like six or seven grand a year that you're saving. And that, it's not like you're getting anything for that. That's just money. You're flushing money down the toilet. That's just interest. The bank, whoever you're getting a loan from is just making that much more from you every single year. And you're not, it's nothing gained. It's not like you're getting to go spend that six grand on a, on a new dirt bike every year. You're just lighting it on fire. And that's the crazy thing about interest. That's why banks, <laughs> that's why banks loan money, right? That's why they're in this game. Um, so yeah, probably went too long on that, but anyway, there's a lot of money to be, to be saved and lost, um, in this market right now, if you are just paying attention. So reach out to Plum Creek funding, ask questions. Zach is getting, they're getting new, adding new States all the time. And if you're in a state that they don't currently work with, he can probably refer you to someone, but his number is 720-212-4685. And again, just ask questions. Also reach out to Fast Foundry, Robert Caracro and the crew over there. They can handle all of your small business needs. Even if you're a Fortune 500, they work with those guys as well. If you have like, you know, virtual events that you want to set up, obviously everyone's kind of back and we're doing things in person again, which is awesome. I hate Zoom calls and that stuff. It's a part of life now, but I would much rather be in person, shake a person's hand, look them in the eye and work on a deal, like work on business together. That's just, I feel like there's a lot to be gained in that scenario. But if you're, you know, struggling with payroll, right? Things are, things are thin right now. Business is really tough. So if you're low on staffing, someone like Fast Foundry can help fill in gaps. They can take a lot of that burden of, if you're like WPS, right? We're trying to get more people we're low on staffing. Lots of people are doing multiple jobs right now just because of the way think the world is. A company like Fast Foundry could, I guarantee you, they could help with some of those processes, right? And if you have a small business and you don't have, uh, like, I'm, you know, a lot of people don't have CPAs, they don't have a CFO, Fast Foundry can fill in those gaps and make your life a lot easier. So reach out to the crew at Fast Foundry, ask for Robert, and, uh, and see, just again, there, there's a lot to be gained by simply asking, hey, what, what could you do? This, this is my situation. These are the things we're struggling with. How can you help? And let them be the experts. Works Connection, though, you know, the last product, big product they came out with was these Yamaha foot peg mounts. Chris Kiefer did a ton of testing and development on these. And if you know anything about Chris Kiefer, he's all about that triangle, right? It's like it's the, the ergonomics of riding and how that affects your... Um, body positioning and all those things. So they really went to work on this Yamaha to make it a little bit more friendly to your average rider. So check out 
those Yamaha foot peg mounts from Work Connection. The uh, promo code JT21 st- should still work at checkout to, uh, to save you some money. Of course, they still have the, uh, the pro launch start device and, uh, you know, frame guards and all the things that works connection does really, really well. But the newest and hottest item are those Yamaha foot peg mounts. Check out pro glow wash, obviously a specifically formulated for power sports and whether it's side by side, dirt bikes, street bikes, whatever it is, if you have, you know, that nasty chain lube grime or dirt grime or road grime, whatever, right. You ride like there's, there are tracks here in Boise where, if you let the dirt stay on your motorcycle for, for a few days, it's ruined. Like it's going to be very, very difficult to get off. It's just nasty dirt. Like there's this like oily has stuff in it that is going to stain your, your rims and your, uh, your engine cases, go get some pro wash and help get that stuff off. It's, it's built and purpose built to eat that stuff off. Right. And, and you go by like simple green or something like that. It's not, it's, it's built to like clean your cabinets and do stuff like that. How can it possibly have this, the, you know, the thought process behind it where you want to clean a side by side? It's just not, it, that's not what they're really going for. So buy something that is support a moto company. Ryan Humphrey and the team over there are as, as enthusiast as it gets. And uh, yeah, Progo wash is a great product. TL speed shop. They are based in Wickenburg, Arizona and Jason and Josh Cobb over there will do everything hands-on to take you on the side-by-side ride of your dreams, right? You can go to Grand Canyon, you can go to Baja, you can go to Sedona, you can do just a day trip, go to like a winery. This is the ultimate side-by-side adventure experience. And you can fly into Phoenix, they will handle the rest. They can do hotels for you, they, they'll have everything, food lined up. And I think one of the coolest things for this, and, and I've thought about it for like, for like WPS, is like a corporate event, right? How fun would it be like a team building event? You fly to Phoenix with your, you know, like say it was like the creative team at Fly Racing. You go down there, you all ride together, you get to know each other much better. You create this great um, working environment that carries on throughout the year. And TL Speech Up, I think, has a really nice opportunity for people to do that. Maybe you want to do it as your vacation, right? You fly in, you get to ride side-by-sides. You don't have to deal with all the maintenance and shoot a side-by-side of this caliber is 40 or 50 grand, right? It's insane how much that stuff costs. So you can, you can jump in a plane, be there in a couple hours and have a really, really, really great experience, especially this time of year. You think about how great the weather is down there, 70s and 80s, just a beautiful, no rain. Um, so check out those guys, TL Speed Shop. Um, and ask for, uh, for Jason or Josh, uh, Grandstone boots, uh, wore them. When did I go out Friday night? Yep. Wore them to dinner on Friday night. Such a great product. Go to grantstoneshoes.com. You can check them out on Instagram, Grantstone. They have all their stuff. They have wallets. They have belts, tons and tons of boots. They have loafers. They have, um, all sorts of different variations, low top, high top, um, everything you could possibly want to whether it's for going out on the weekends or maybe an office environment, just a really, really great product. And I've been associated with them from the very, very beginning, and I've got to watch them kind of grow up. And uh, yeah, just an incredible offering that they have and, and expanding all the time. So check those guys out. Brand new for 2023, and I'll be telling you more about them as we go, is uh, the International Vet MX Series. And I'll have a list of events for them, and, and I want you to get to know them a little bit better. Just a, a great group of guys and a great series of events that they put together. And last but not least, uh, fly racing, of course. You guys know me well enough that fly racing is uh, a part of everything I do and touch. So the last question that we're going to do for today is, uh, let's see here. Honestly, oh, it's from uh, from Francis. So um, asking about... The, the Yamaha and asking about Tomac, right? So he was in, insane in 2022, right? He wins everything. He wins Supercross. He wins motocross. He wins world Supercross events. He's just been pretty much untouchable this, this whole year. Now they go to the 2023 motorcycle. And as we know, a lot of times when you switch to a brand new motorcycle, things are difficult. It doesn't always go to plan. Ask the KTM guys how that switched to the 2022 went right it didn't go well and no matter what you see or hear 
it didn't go well. The guys were not happy with the bike. They couldn't get it to work in the whoops. They struggled all year long. That was everybody that's been on it. They've all had complaints. If you watch Paris, you saw more of the same. They struggled in the whoops. Not a lot has improved. And that's going to be a big question mark for those guys going into 2023. So that's kind of where Francis is coming into this question for Tomac. And I guess Ferrandis would be the same. How is that bike going to be? Is it, are they going to see growing pains with it? Is it going to be that same dynamic that KTM had? Um, so my take on that is yes and no. And Right, great answer, right? Oh, perfect. Take both sides. Um, but I think there will be times especially early in the season where they struggle with settings because it's that, you know, cliche of you don't know what you don't know yet. You know, there, there are going to be nights much like my comparison to Roxon with the, with the Honda where the track's different. It's softer. It's breaking down. It's ruddy. It's rougher. And you, you want to rely on your testing but the bike's different. So you can't just look at what do we, okay, what do we do in 2022 here and 2021? Well, for, I guess for Tomac, that wouldn't really be applicable, but at least 2022, you could say, okay, we made these changes in these conditions and it fixed it. Okay. That's, that's what teams do all the time. They refer to prior data for guidance on what to change. You're not, you can't rely on that as much because the bike is different. So you can't just say, okay, in this scenario, we did X and the result was this. It's not that anymore because the bike is different. The geometry is different. How the bike responds to input or change is going to be different. That's going to be the, the challenge for these teams is to figure it out on the fly. Yes, they are testing right now, right? They're in California. They're in Colorado. They're doing as much testing as possible, but you can't replicate the conditions that you're going to see in Tampa or Oakland or take your pick, Nashville. Those tracks are all different. The dirt's all different. The temperature conditions, moisture levels, all those things are different than you can get. Maybe you can get close by happenstance, but you don't, we don't know what the track's going to be like at Seattle. You know, we know it's going to be soft. Is it going to rain? Maybe, maybe not. Is it Because I've been to Seattle and I've raced it when it was super slippery and super hard packed. Um, trying to think what year that was, maybe 08. But I've also ridden it like in 09 when it was really soft and ruts everywhere and you like you needed the most aggressive tire possible and you needed all these things that wouldn't have worked at all in 08. And I've also ridden it in pure mud, like just absolute anarchy mud. And it's so what my point is, those races, you just don't know what you're going to get. So you can't be able to be like, okay, well, we're going to Seattle. It's going to be this. You don't know that, you know? So you're going to have to be very versatile. You're going to have to be adaptable and you're going to have to be ready to be open-minded with a brand new motorcycle in those conditions. So, you know, Francis here is asking if the bike is going to be ready come a one. I think they're hoping, right? Because most guys leave a one really unhappy with their bike. That's just the norm. Because you do all this testing, you think you're in a really good place, and then Anaheim shows you how much work you still have left to do. That's just pretty much how it is for everybody. So I think they're going to be really happy. My, this is my prediction. This is the answer to your question. I think they go into Anaheim really happy. They ride press day. Things are going pretty well. And then it's just tough at night. They're, the track's changing. The, you're pushing the bike harder. You're riding it differently than you have been all the off season because the adrenaline's higher. There's more pressure. The you just can't replicate that intensity at the practice track, and the bike's going to respond differently when you ride it differently. And the conditions are going to be different. It's going to be at night. You know, the moisture is going to start to come up at Anaheim, which it always does. So it's going to get more slippery. The traction's going to change. So that all those subtle things affect how the bike works and. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all that they leave Anaheim going, man, we got all these things that we thought we knew are wrong, right? We need to go back to the drawing board. And it's probably not a radical change, but it's like, man, we really thought we kind of had this nailed and we don't. That is really, really normal for Anaheim. And I'm sure they, they know that. But even if you know it, 
you can't be like, okay, <laughs> you try to anticipate being wrong. Like that doesn't really work, right? You, you go in with the best setting possible. You go in with as much um, preparation as possible. And you try to have a bunch of different game plans. Like, okay, if the bike does this, how do we, if the bike feels like this, how do we address it? If the bike feels like this, how do we address it? But you just, I, I really come back to you don't know what you don't know yet. And you're, it's going to be a big learning experience. It always is with a new motorcycle. You know, you test and you ride it and all those things. But when you put it into a new situation and the whoops will be different, the jumps will be different, how does the bike respond in those moments? Because you don't have all this data on the old motorcycle to draw from anymore. So I hope that helps answer your question. But it's really more of a learn as we go. And that's the challenge of a new motorcycle, you know, for, for riders that have a really good platform year over year, like Honda, right? That should be a great setup for Sexton going into 23 because they have a ton that they learned in 2022. They figured, you know, and I'll, I'll flash back to early 2022. Roxon and Sexton were really unhappy with the motorcycle. I talked to Trey Kennard about it. He said they went in the wrong direction testing. He said they got way off base of what works and what, and they thought was going to be really good. They were simply wrong and they were chasing that mistake for weeks into 2022. You see Roxon crashing at Oakland. You see Sexton having these huge crashes. Kennard points to the testing in the off season going into 2022 as the reason they just didn't get testing right. They were way off on direction and that cost them big time in 2022. Well, they surely learned a lot and you look at how good Sexton was at the end of Supercross and then how awesome he was in motocross. Well, now they're going into 23 with a very similar motorcycle, if not identical, and they have all this data to draw from. They can use all of that and it should make them that much better right? They know what to avoid. They know what directions to stay away from, and they can take all of the strides they made and build off those. So I would have much more questions about the Yamaha guys than I would like Sexton, because I think Sexton is just going to continue on with what they had. It's a much more comforting feeling to know what you're getting into, know what the bike is, and just be able to work on yourself and make incremental improvements than it is to go in with a brand new motorcycle and be like, okay, we have to work through all these parts and try all these things. And all, you know, it's, it's a really painstaking process. It's one that every factory rider goes through at probably multiple times of their career. It's just not the best one. Sometimes it can be awesome, right? If you don't have a great bike, you're begging for a new bike. Like, I would bet that the KTM guys are like, man, I, I hope that, you know, I hope we make changes in 24 again, because they're not loving the 23. That would be my guess. But if you're Tomac and you're on that Yamaha in 22, that is just phenomenal, right? I, I would have to think he loves that bike. You're probably looking at the 23 going, eh, I hope it's good, man. Please, please, please be good. Because I know what I'm capable of on the 22. Please don't put me in a, in a situation where I'm taking a step backwards. That would be a huge bummer if you're Tomac. And, and I don't know, he could be better. That 23 could be better than 22. That's what you're hoping for, but it's always a gamble. It's just a part of the ever evolving dynamic of motorcycles, right? They're, the OEMs are not going to stop making changes. You know, they have to make changes to sell motorcycles and create interest and hopefully continue to, to improve the end product. But sometimes you go backwards, right? Like there's no way on God's green earth you'll ever convince me that going from the 2008 Honda to the 2009 Honda was an improvement. It just it was not. It, end of story, full stop, it was not. It was a worse motorcycle in 2009 than it was in 2008. Sometimes it goes that way. I think... If you asked Cooper Webb or Muscan or Plessinger or anybody, I would bet Jeffrey Hurlings or any of the you know KTM Europe guys too, was the 2022, or sorry, was the 2021 K2 
KTM factory motorcycle better than the 2022? I would bet that's a hard yes. I would bet a lot of money that's a hard yes, okay? So sometimes it just goes that way. And that's what we're gonna have to see with Tomac. Is the bike better or worse? I don't know, I haven't ridden it. We'll find out. That's gonna be one of the more intriguing parts of 2023 is to find out if that motorcycle is better or not. So, man, long podcast this week. I'm excited for it though. I'm getting, again, like I opened, I'm getting more antsy for 2023. It's starting, you know, I go through these stages of burnout, man. I'm so over it by the end of the season and just don't, I don't want to be on a plane anymore. I don't want to be at the track anymore. I just want to do anything but travel. I just want to sit in my house and watch TV, which sounds incredibly boring. I get it, but you for me, after that many races and that much traveling, it's just what I wanted to do. Well, I'm kind of coming out of that hibernation a little bit, and I'm starting to get excited and start to think about the season and the anticipation and the excitement starting to ramp. I'm, I'm not there yet, okay? Full, full disclosure, I'm not there yet, but I can feel it starting to build. And that's an exciting feeling as you start to get itchy to get back to the races. And I, can, I can already start to picture myself at A1, and that atmosphere and that excitement, it's going to be here before we know it. So thank you to all, all of you for listening. Please keep sending these questions because this is what the podcast is going to be for the next month. So send in the questions. It really helps me give content and it helps me kind of broaden my horizons and perspectives and uh, yeah, just kind of how I'm approaching the season. So uh, let's keep them coming. Thanks again. See you.